Hey guys! Hey! Little cold intro. I'm Savannah. This is Alicia. That's me. That's you. Alicia. <laughs> um, we're cold opening today to tell you that we are hosting a giveaway. Yay! It's our first giveaway. We're so excited. I'll let Alicia explain a little bit yeah. about what we're doing. So we each handpicked uh, a gift set. So my gift set is a Gen X. Well, we're just saying, I'm saying that because I'm Gen X and I picked it. I think most Gen Xers would like it. My gift set includes a tote bag, the true crime theme, a an adult coloring book with true crime sayings or funny phrases, an activity book to keep our brains up and running <laughs> for us older Gen Xers. Oh my gosh. And in that, a really nice set of colored pencils. Hey. And then the little Gen Z gift has a murder pun mug, a dead body planner. It's just a daily planner, but it's really cute. A little Jeffrey Dahmer um, pencil case, makeup bag. I love that thing. type thing. It's very cute. <laughs> and a motel keychain for the hotel Cecil, which yes. I am obsessed with. I actually think I'm going to order one for myself because it's so cute. And I it love the, the motel keychain trend. So I'm yes. very excited. All right, so how the giveaway is going to run, we are going to start today, Thursday, September 29th, 2022, for future reference. <laughs> and you can enter to win through Saturday, October 8th, where we will do a live drawing on social media. Yeah, it's going to be our first live. Even though it's a Saturday, people might be busy. We're going to upload it afterwards so you can go back and watch it. We'll tag the winner. The rules of the giveaway are you should tag a friend for an immediate entry. You get an additional entry for leaving a review on any sort of platform, especially Apple. Especially Apple. Please leave us Apple Please reviews. Please leave us Apple reviews. Um, if you'll just in your comment underneath our post, um, tag your friend. If you do leave a review, tag the name that your review is under so that we can yes. go back and verify. And then you get a third entry if you share it on your story, on your Facebook page, on your Instagram page. As long as you tag us, otherwise we won't know. Yes. Um, so yeah, you've got three different ways to win. Share, I'm so share, excited. Share. share, share, share. And we'll be pulling two different winners on the 8th. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the case. Sounds good. Good. I'm fantastic. You gonna introduce yourself? I am. My name is Savannah. <laughs> and I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. Yes. So we're all on, uh, kind of on a high over here. Oh my gosh. This you is guys. Our first, this is our first recording since the launch. Yes. This will probably come out in like two or three weeks or so. Yep. But we just had our launch weekend and we are blown away. So thank you all. Thank you so much. This is like insane. Yeah. Thank you to everyone who we know is listening. And thank you so much to everybody that we don't know is listening. That's the coolest part. The coolest part for me is that there's people all over the world. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like So many countries. Seriously. I had to ask Alicia where one of them was. <laughs> I was like, where, where is this? <laughs> so yes. it's been really, really cool. And um. I don't want to like, I want to front load our content. I don't want to have too much at the beginning of us just like rambling. But I do want to just say like, if you are 
listening, please go follow us on Instagram or on Facebook. We want to see who you are. We want to see your faces. We want yeah. to put faces to the numbers. So that absolutely, would be great. our expectations right. were way exceeded. So yes, definitely, absolutely. So we earned our celebration cake. Yes, we definitely did. So all right, are you ready? Savannah I is, don't think I am. This case is a little different, so Savannah is not ready for it, but she's going to do it. Oh, yeah, I am. she has no choice. Well, no, and it needs, it's, it's <laughs> one of those cases that needs to be talked about. You it know? does. It does need to be co- talked about. So this case is a little different. It's an exoneration case. I just feel like if we're going to focus on true crime, part of that is knowing that sometimes our justice system isn't quite what it's supposed to be and Mm -hmm. sometimes people end up in prison that didn't commit the murder so especially like yeah i just i want to upfront say that this is a lot to do there's a lot of race talk oh absolutely in this case as well and we have talked to i reached out to several of my Mm -hmm. um you know my black my black friends honestly and asked them, like, how should we handle this? Is it okay if we're talking about this? Because we are two white women. Yeah. Um, and I never want to come off as, like, the white saviors or anything like that. Nope. That's not what we're trying to do at all. But I do think that if we are going to have a platform, it is incredibly important for us to talk about these things. Yeah. And talk about them, you know, sensitively and with intelligence as to how how to handle it, I guess. Yeah. And I had a conversation um, before even starting my research fully with my shout out to Daniel with my friend Daniel Daniel, uh who we sometimes if I slip up and call him Daniel (laughs) it's because (laughs) that's what our kids called him when they were little and couldn't pronounce it anywho he is very much advocating on race issues these days yeah so I felt he was the perfect person to ask Mm -hmm. and I just explained that I really want to do this case because while on one hand, am I qualified to talk about race issues? No, (laughs) I'm not going to like I am. I am a white girl, white woman. But I feel as though if we as if we expect to call ourselves allies on issues Mm -hmm. like this, we have to talk because our platform is going to be different than another podcast platform. Exactly. So if we expect to get the message out to everyone and bring these things to light to everyone, then everyone needs to be talking about it. We just have to be humble enough to say, I don't have all the answers. I don't, you know, I, yeah. I can sympathize, but mm-hmm. I can't fully empathize with these issues. Yep. So that's my goal. I hope it I hope it works. Yeah. I absolutely. hope it works out. I hope that listeners, you know. And if you're white and listening, reach out to your black friends and family and talk to them about these issues and get their point of views as well because yeah. it's we have to check ourselves and how we see the world versus how other people and other cultures and other races see the world is very different. Absolutely. And that's so important. So absolutely. So I'm gonna get into it. Okay. So This case stood out. There are tons of exoneration cases, and at the end, I'll get into some statistics about that because I don't think many of us understand just how common it can be Mm -hmm. um, for people to be wrongfully imprisoned. 
But this one is a huge one. So his name is Kevin Bernard Strickland. His nickname was Nordy or Nardy. And you'll hear variations of that kind of throughout the case. He was born June 7th, 1959. He was 18 years old at the time of the arrest and 19 years old at the time of conviction. So he was a baby. Other than that, there's not much to be found on his life prior to the conviction because, you know, he was just a kid. And yeah, you're 18. People aren't digging into you when you're just a person wrongfully imprisoned for killing a few people than they would if it was like this big serial killer case, mm -hmm. you know, like we do. So we'll start with some background on on how it came to be that he was wrongfully accused. Basically, he was friends with his neighbor, Vincent Bell. Neither of them were necessarily upstanding citizens, we'll say, but Kevin had never been convicted of a crime before. He had been involved in, in some things in question, but he had never been convicted of anything. And on the night of, I'm sorry, on the evening or late afternoon, depending on how you think of it, on April 25th, 1978, around 5 p.m., Vincent stopped by Kevin's house with a friend named Kilm Adkins and then another man that Kevin didn't know. That evening at about 8.30 p.m., Two men arrive at the home of 21-year-old Larry Ingram, 22-year-old Sherry Black, 20-year-old John Walker, and Walker's girlfriend, 20-year-old Cynthia Douglas, were all at Ingram's home when the men arrived. Ingram let the two men in, and then they proceeded to pull out guns. When he asked them what they want, one of the men said, you know what I want. One of the gunmen then opened the door and let two more men in the house. And those men may have had their, there was some talk about them have at least one of them having their face covered, mm -hmm. but you could like see his hair. So they proceeded to tie everyone up and then they took Ingram into another room. The victims then heard a shot and the gunmen re-entered the room and shot all three of them. However, Cynthia Douglas did survive. She pretended to be dead and not move until she heard them leave. And then she made her way outside of the home where she ran into some neighbors and they then took her to their house and called the police. Cynthia was immediately able to tell the police while still there and the EMTs were, you know, mm -hmm. checking out her wounds and stuff because she was shot in the arm and the leg, I believe. She was able to tell the police um, that she recognized two of the men and she named Vincent Bell and Kilm Adkins, explaining how she knew both of them. Vincent's brother and Cynthia's sister had a kid together. Okay. And Cynthia knew Kilm Adkins' um, sister. She was friends with his sister. Mm -hmm. Despite knowing Kevin Strickland for two or three years at that point, she did not name him. She did not recognize anybody as Kevin. The police then follow up with Cynthia at the hospital after she had been treated for her injuries. 
The time was about 3.20 in the morning of April 26, 1978, which is just hours into the night after the shooting. At that point, Cynthia repeated what she told police on scene, which was she recognized Bell and Adkins, but she could not identify the other two men. The morning of the 26th, Kevin Strickland and another friend were seen by police going to Bell's residence. Later that same morning, police arrest Kevin, even though the records were unclear as to how he became a sus- suspect in the first place. Because at the time of his arrest, she had not yeah, she identified said him. his name at all. Police would later claim that he became a suspect because they heard the name Norty from Cynthia Douglas at the scene of the crime. But it was not in any of the reports from her interviews, nor on the first two what they call pickup lists of suspects. No one named Kevin or anyone with the nickname of Norty were on those lists at the point that he was arrested. So they're basically saying, well, we heard it. It just didn't get written down. Kind of. Mm. The first and only place Kevin's name or nickname is mentioned prior to his arrest is on a wanted notice for someone by the initials T.A., as a person named Naughty, N-A-U-D-I, who is an associate of T.A. Now, they use T.A. in all the court documents because T.A. was never charged mm-hmm. with any any of these crimes. So I don't know who T.A. actually is. But now Kevin was arrested around 3.20 a.m., on April 6th, April 26th. So about the same time that they're at the hospital interviewing Cynthia, mm-hmm. other police are already arresting, arresting him and she has not named him yet. But while being questioned, Kevin made the unfortunate choice to use sarcasm and boasting with police. He's a young... He's 18. He's a young kid that, yeah, was he probably, you know... Trying to act like a badass. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's just what I imagine. Because there wasn't... The, the detectives claimed that he threatened them and that he made comments about how much he enjoys shooting guns. But even if you do those things, that doesn't mean you actually did that. Yeah. Or were there. Yeah. That's not, not really proof of anything. It's not how our justice system is supposed to work anyway. But he did tell detectives that Bell, Adkins, and another individual he did not know stopped by his home that afternoon at 5 p.m. And he did admit that he had given Bell some shotgun shells at some point prior to the shooting, but he couldn't remember exactly when. But it wasn't the same day. It was prior. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know. He told them, I don't know what he was using them for. We shoot guns like we all have guns in our home. And, you know, he probably just thought he was going shooting because it was shotgun shells. Yeah. So so while that's taking place, while Kevin is being detained, Cynthia Douglas had been released to go home where she had a conversation with her sister's boyfriend, Randy Harris. I'm going to go with Randy. I actually his name was like given two different names. In some Mm -hmm. places, he was called Randy Harris. In some places, it said Marcus Harris. Anyway, we'll just call him Harris from here on out. 
So it was him that suggested to Cynthia that one of the men who had been holding the shotgun during the crime could have been Nardi due to the description that Cynthia gave him. Because she could describe his hair, Mm -hmm. his build, about how tall he was, but she didn't see his face. Cynthia then calls the police to identify Kevin. And, like, she just goes along with it, I guess, at that point. Or at least enough to say, I think it might be. Maybe this was him. Yeah. Yeah. Which, fair, because you're trying to figure out who just shot you. Right. You're doing your best. That's all you can do. And... Yeah, and we'll get into a little bit on eyewitness testimony and how that works. Mm-hmm. Like, when other people start making okay. suggestions to you, it yeah. really messes with what your memory is of the of the facts. So she did not know at the time, though, when she called police to say, maybe, I, I think maybe this could be him. Um, she didn't know he was already in custody. So she goes to the station later that afternoon to be interviewed again and this time she tells them nardi like but she admits i was talking to harris he suggested that it could be this person because based on the description that i'm able to give yes it could be him she claimed that her inability to identify him sooner despite knowing him was probably because she had they were there partying like they were smoking Mm -hmm. marijuana and she was drinking cognac i love that i never know how to say that word i think it's cognac cognac i don't know yeah something like that i'm not not yet 21 and i my parents don't drink i've never been around a bunch of people who drink so there's lots of i've never had it myself yeah i don't know how to pronounce it's too I don't know that it actually is that fancy. I don't think it's that expensive of a liquor, but I don't know. It was big in the 70s, though, mm. which is when this took place. So so investigators have Cynthia look at a lineup, except instead of asking her to pick the man she believes to be the perpetrator, they literally ask her to identify Kevin Strickland. What? You can't do that. That is... That it, <laughs> you're not... What? I'm not a police officer, but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> no, because now instead of looking for who shot her, she's looking for a she's person looking, that she knows. Yes. 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 Just let that simmer for a moment. I, yeah. Yeah. So over the weeks of collecting physical evidence, investigators found nothing that definitively linked Kevin Strickland to the crime. What they found was they did find the shotgun that was used. They also found they they did a, a search of his home and they found a shotgun in his home and then determined that it wasn't the shotgun used. They eventually do find the shotgun used. However, they claim that they could not retrieve any suitable fingerprints for comparison. And where do they find that? It was somewhere, like, dumped somewhere. Okay. Yeah, like, a, just a random person found it yeah. and then called police and, and they determined that it was the shotgun used, but, but they claim that, oh, there's no fingerprints. Convenient. So all they do find is fingerprints, Kevin Strickland's fingerprints, on Vincent Bell's rear view mirror of his car but again they're friends 
their neighbors. And Kevin Strickland admitted, I've driven his car before, like within the last few weeks. Yeah, what's the first thing you do when you get into somebody else's car? And you're Adjust not, the mirrors yeah, absolutely. so that you can see. They don't have a lot. So they have nothing. They have so nothing. They, yeah. So you would think that, well, we can't really do much with that, right? What judge or like let them hold him? Now, remember, this is 1978 in Missouri. Oh. So well, keep, let me you add have it. to keep that in mind you're as right. you're doing, just, as you're I thinking get, about I'm it. Upset. I'm I know. Mad. I know. Let me add. Why I oughta. <laughs> so despite not having what most would consider sufficient evidence, the prosecution moved forward. The first trial ended in a mistrial. Okay. This is where it starts to get really what, what difficult. Do you, what do you mean? It, so do you know why um, it was labeled as a mistrial or did it just the jury, the jury? It was a hung jury. Okay. The prosecutor blamed the mistrial on the inclusion of one black juror. You can't see, but I'm just blinking at her yes. very intensely. He openly described the seating of that juror as, quote, careless and stated that he would not make, quote, that mistake again. So this this lawyer needs to take a class on jury selection because... Oh, we'll get there. I don't even have a quip. I don't have yeah, a line. I, I know. I, I know. It's hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, I know. I want to wrap my fist around his throat, not my <laughs> mind around anything. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so the second trial takes place in April of 1979. A year later, the prosecutor stayed true to his word. He used all of his peremptory strikes against all of the potential jurors who were black. That's insane. So for the listeners who don't know what a peremptory strike is, they're basically actions, if you will, for lack of a better term, that are given to both sides, the prosecution and the defense, in a limited number. You have a limited number of them, but it's basically where when you're trying to select the jury, you may exclude a potential juror without reason or explanation. Mm -hmm. And this is the key. This is key. Because I know everyone is probably thinking how, like, I get that, but still you can't discriminate, right? Except... Except you can, actually. And this was in 1978. And it wasn't until 1986 that the Supreme Court upheld that these strikes cannot be used to systematically exclude potential jurors on the basis of race. So the judge allowed it. Yeah. That's what I Like, basically, yeah, they, they could. Yep. It was like, yeah, another seven years before that, that is wasn't insane. allowed. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to, sub subtopic, can we talk about the fact that half of our history books have black and white pictures where there should just be colored pictures because it's not that long ago? <laughs> and so... Like, you're looking at him and you're like, oh, this is so long ago. No. It's no, really it not. wasn't. It yeah. was not that long ago. Yeah. This is a perfect example of that. I My parents were alive. I was almost alive. They were very young. I, well, I, oh no, I'm a few months younger. I was born three months later after the second trial. 
So, like, it's just, it blows my mind. Yep. All right. Needless to say, this trial for this crime involving four black victims and four black perpetrators moved forward with an all-white jury, a white judge presiding, and white attorneys representing both sides. The prosecution offered nothing but several officers' testimonies that could not be corroborated. They had no real physical evidence of these testimonies. The forensic and medical examiner's testimonies that did not definitively show any evidence linking Kevin Strickland to the shooting. The testimony of Harris, the boyfriend of Mm -hmm. Cynthia Douglas's sister, and the testimony of Cynthia herself. They offered no motive, instead asking the jury to infer, quote, that they went over there to take over a dope house. So despite not having any evidence that Kevin had any prior convictions or was involved in drugs or anything of the sort, or had any reason to be in the home, and all of that stuff. Sorry, I'm hitting my microphone because I'm so worked up. I'm it's very my upsetting. Hand around. I yeah. All because Cynthia Douglas told the court that she did identify Kevin Strickland as the man with the shotgun, but only after speaking with Harris, and at no time before did she mention him to police. So she testifies to that. Because it's true. One of the officers, a Sergeant Parker, an officer who testified at both trials, and he was the first to interview Cynthia Douglas at the scene of the crime, he even contradicts himself at the second trial. Because in the first trial, he testified that he was questioning Douglas while she was receiving treatment inside the home of the neighbors who Mm -hmm. found her. But in the second trial, he testifies that he questioned her while she was in the back of an ambulance. Is that a big deal? No, except it proves that his memory isn't intact by the time of the second trial. It seems like not a big deal, but it really is. Because it's just saying that you can't... That's This is a lesson in reasonable doubt. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You can't trust anything that this guy says at this point. Right. Especially since he's testifying and wants the jury to believe that he remembered her talking about a guy named Nardi or Nordy, but he neglected to write it in his report, but he remembers it happening, even though he can't remember where he was yeah. exactly so, when yeah. questioning her. Mm-hmm. Other officers testified in similar manner, one claiming that he wrote Nardi in his personal investigative notebook, but they did not enter that into the physical that's evidence. Nerd, that's such a dorky thing to say. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm an investigator, but I, I didn't write it in my report. I wrote it in my personal investigative notebook. <laughs> it's just like a pink uh, spiral with unicorns and glitter on it. <laughs> he keeps it under his bed in his mom's house. Where he lives. Maybe. I have a vision of this guy now. (laughs) Okay. He's a loser. So the defense counsel provided several witnesses that could explain Kevin's whereabouts during the time of the shooting. 
Mm-hmm. Kilm Adkins, who was also who was absolutely identified as one of the shooters, his mother testified that her son and Vincent Bell and the man that they then referred to as T.A. and another man who nobody knew, who she didn't know, had never seen before, were at her home from 7 to 7.30, so just before the shooting, like the hour before mm-hmm. the shooting, the evening of that same evening. And she knows, she testifies that she knows Kevin Strickland was not with them. So why in the world is this guy in jail? I, I don't, if... Yeah. So basically, she said... <laughs> let me get this straight. So she said, under oath, mm-hmm. this guy, this guy, and this guy were at my house together. And with a fourth man that nobody knows. That nobody knows. An hour before. And then did she yeah. testify that they left together? Yeah. They were at her oh. house, and then they left. And then an hour, she says, from 7 to 7.30, they were at her house. I just got really bad deja vu. And an hour later, there's four men. Three of those men, people are identifying. The TA guy, I believe, was identified eventually yeah. by Kilmadkins Kilma- and Vincent Bell. So... And they were seen with T.A. It It's just mind-boggling. Sorry, I'm smacking things again because I'm so worked up. Okay. So the unfortunate part is defense counsel, they had, they had really strong witness testimony, but it's that whole, like, prosecution has officers testifying. Oh, my gosh. And defense has, you know... All the friends and family mm-hmm. of the defendant testifying. So, unfortunately, defense counsel neglected to seek independent analysis of the fingerprints on the shotgun. So, when okay, investiga- investigators say, we can't get any fingerprints, we're not entering it into evidence, defense counsel just accepted that for what it was, and they shouldn't have. Yeah, they definitely shouldn't have. But... Despite a lack of clear and definitive evidence, the jury convicted Kevin Strickland to life without eligibility of parole on capital murder, which was 50 years at the time. It's it's a capital crime, so he was on death row? He would have been. He didn't get death. He did not get sentenced to death, but he got what they had a six-year period where they had a law in place. They called it the hard 50 that they would give to defendants that could have gotten the -hmm. death penalty, but they didn't want to give the death penalty. So it was like, you know, this is going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah, But it was technically a capital crime. Yeah. And then he got 10 years for each count of second-degree murder, all to be served concurrently. Now, here's the real kicker. This man... In this trial, with all this lack of evidence, gets that sentence. Whereas Vincent Bell and Kilm Adkins, who were immediately identified, they found more evidence on them, and they plead they plead guilty, received twenty years. What? 
How does that happen? That's what plea deals were they? It was, yeah, but like, was it a deal? Oh, I'm sure because they pled oh, guilty. So yeah. Bell, but here's the other kicker: Bell testifies at his own trial that it was Atkins, the man referred to as TA, and a man referred to as with the initials PH, that were with him during the shooting. Does he not tells testify them, that it's Kevin. Does not say, oh, yeah, it was Kevin. No. Testifies and claims it was two other men. T.A. was never charged. And while unwilling to admit his own guilt, he confirmed years later, um, I believe he was in prison on another charge, like later down the road, he eventually it catches up to you. But he never got charged for this crime. But he admits to somebody in the prison who then tells authorities that he admitted that Kevin wasn't there, stating, quote, there couldn't be a more innocent person than Norty. It's insane. Then Kilm Adkins began attesting publicly to Kevin's innocence in 1981. So just a few years later. Yeah. Cynthia Douglas also began telling her family that she wrongfully identified Kevin, like, that same year. But she didn't know what to do. She spent years feeling guilty and just didn't know which avenue to take to rectify the situation because she could go... I mean, even if she goes to police, if the prosecution isn't willing to open it back up or do anything about it, what do you do? In 2009, she contacted the Midwest Innocence Project, seeking their assistance. But, unfortunately, just like regular attorneys and firms, they can only accept requests from the convict themselves. They cannot reach out to them. So even if somebody else reaches out and says, hey, I have information, I have tips, or can you help this person... They cannot reach out to that person, nor can they, they can't even tell the person sending the request, oh, no, this is how it is. So they, I mean, they essentially had to ignore the request because. Yeah, I mean. Them's the rules. Them's the rules. And unfortunately, Cynthia Douglas passed away in 2015. Oh. So it wasn't until 2020 that Kevin finally got some traction on proving his innocence. I think I do remember when, um, like, seeing this online. Good, because I I had not really heard. I don't know. You just don't. Unless you specifically follow things like the Innocence Project mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that, you don't. It's not you know, widespread news all the time. It'll be big news, like, in that specific city that they get released in. Like, all those local places Mm -hmm. will cover it, but it's not nationwide. So you don't hear about how many of them there are. Oh, yeah. I mean, you hear about the big ones, especially, like, Twitter is a great place to see stuff like that. Yeah. Um, So. I'm not on Twitter. (laughs) 
I'm not normally on Twitter. I'm old. I used to have a Twitter account, but I think I gave it up or shut it down or something. So it was in 2020 that Kevin found out that the Kansas City Police Department were in possession of the fingerprint cards taken from the shotgun. So, again, remember that the police had said there were no usable, suitable fingerprints for comparison. So my question is, number one, if there if there wasn't, is that normal to keep that evidence if it wasn't usable? Probably. I would say that's probably pretty normal. I mean, look, we keep everything. True. Even just in our that's firm. That's true. And we're not, I mean, we're doing important work, but it's not yeah. life-altering. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. spend 40 years in jail. Yeah. You know. True. So I'm sure that it is at least normal to keep it somewhere. Well, thankfully they did. Because with the permission from the county prosecutor, Kevin requested that the Kansas City PD compare his prints to the ones taken from the gun. Mm -hmm. And this testing showed that one of the fingerprints from the gun was suitable and absolutely did not match Kevin Strickland's. All of Cynthia Douglas's friends and family cooperated and came forward and affirmed that she had wished to recant her identification identification well, of kevin yeah. um, multiple of them were able to attest to cynthia's belief in kevin's innocence and gave detailed sworn statements as to the conversations that they had with her before her passing now here's where i said we're going to cover a little bit about the eyewit the whole yeah problem with eyewitness yeah. testimony while trying to you know, gain evidence as to his innocence, they contact Professor John Wixted. Um, he's a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, who has published extensively on the subject matter of eyewitness testimony. He reviewed the circumstances of Cynthia's identification of Kevin. And according to him, studies show that eyewitness memory is highly reliable on an initial test of uncontaminated memory using proper testing procedures. Mm -hmm. So he believes, he's not against eyewitness testimony, but it has to be, yeah. <laughs> it's very specific. And he ultimately concluded that, quote, the eyewitness evidence in this case properly understood provides compelling evidence of innocence, not guilt. Because she initially said no. Said, or didn't say no, but didn't name him. Did not name him and said, I, she literally said, I do not know who the other two gunmen are. And so that's what you have she to had believe. known. And that's the other thing is she knew Kevin Strickland. So she was likely to recognize him if it had mm -hmm. been him. Just as she did with the other two guys. So the county prosecutor's office actually moves forward with trying to oh, petition. I'm assuming it's a different prosecutor at this point. Oh, at this point. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It's, f f what, 40? He spent 43 years, I believe. Oh, God. 43 years. Yeah, he was released in 2021, so, and he went, he was arrested in 1978. 
So the county prosecutor's office asserted that almost all arguments in support of upholding Kevin's conviction had been on Kevin's comments and actions after the shooting. His 18-year-old His 18-year-old punk inflammatory comments that really amounted to no actual evidence. This included the remarks made to the police as well as the allegation that he attempted... Oh, this was left out of evidence in the court. So he supposedly attempted to bribe Cynthia Douglas to stay quiet, which was presumed because of a police report that stated that Harris, the boyfriend of Cynthia's sister, confirmed that he called and said that he would pay her. So they just assumed that the bribe actually took place, even though there was no proof of it. And Cynthia said, no, I've never been paid to say anything anything, either way. Vincent Bell was at some point interviewed at that, you know, about that. And he affirmed that Kevin made the call, but only trying to help him out because they're friends. So... He's like, Harris assumed that he was guilty just because he made the call or that he was involved, but he wasn't involved. He was just doing that because he didn't want to see me go to jail, basically. Basically. So that's why that information was not entered into evidence at the trial, um, nor were the witnesses questioned on it because it's basically hearsay. But then years later, people who have all of the investigative evidence like, that's their argument. It's, yeah, but look, he did this. But that's not... It's hearsay. Yeah, you can't it submit can't, that. Yeah. So, ultimately, the the current Jackson co- County Prosecutor, Jean Peters Baker, uh, did not agree, and she motioned the court to set aside Kevin's judgment on August 28th of 2021. And on November 23rd, 2021, Judge James Welsh vacated Kevin's conviction. Yay! Yay! But also, like, what a sad... I mean, it's such a happy day, but what a sad day, too, to, like... Because he's... He's in his 60s at this point. And he... Yeah. So, you're just... Yeah. And how much has changed, and that's such a hard thing to come out of Mm -hmm. prison on... You've spent your entire adult life in prison. How much has changed, like, even just tech-wise from when you were born to now... And that's Everything what he's walking into. It's yeah, absolutely all because the prosecution grabbed an all-white jury and a white judge in Missouri in the late seventies. Yep. So they did not look at it remotely the way that they should have, or like the way that anybody should have. Oh yeah. This is, it, it just blows my mind. I don't know how anybody could look at this case and not say it's about racism. Seriously. How, how could how? you not? Because. How do you not see? There's literally no. There's no, no evidence saying that he should be in jail. Evidence. Ever. And that little tiny bit of evidence that you, you it's a stretch. And I. this is coming from a person that I love. I've talked about this. Yeah. I love circumstantial cases, but the fact of the matter is it, the circumstantial evidence has to pile up against that person. And it can't be like much. two little things. It has to be like all signs, literally all signs 
point in the direction of that person. And this is the opposite. Every sign points to different people, including the people who actually did it. Yes. So that is something that the judge notes here um, when he vacates. So he noted that the Missouri law now allowed him to consider both information and evidence, which would include the, quote, numerous inconsistent affidavits about Cynthia's recantations. He also said that the statements of the co-conspirators, meaning Bell and Adkins, normally would not be taken into account but in this case he did take them into account because rather than naming this is a quote sorry rather than naming people who had died were unable to be located or were not even non-existent vincent bell named known associates because that's very typical. When you're a co-conspirator, like you don't want to be a snitch, but you also want them to think that you're cooperating. Yeah. So you give, they give, they lie and they say, mm-hmm. oh, it was this person, but oh, conveniently they just died or whatever. Yeah. He didn't do that. He named people that they tracked down and were able to say, yeah, you are known for hanging out with it. Like you yeah. have ties to these people. The judge also noted that due to no physical evidence connecting Kevin to the shootings and his conviction being held solely on Cynthia Douglas's testimony, which was recanted, the court's confidence in Strickland's conviction is so undermined that it cannot stand. I I can't. I, like, don't even have. Yep. It's, where are the words? They're not in my head. No. Like, what do you, I, I just... Stuff like this comes out and you just sit there like dumbfounded watching all the things in the news and going, how, how, I get that originally this happened in 1978, but the reason that I brought up like all of the, the fact that there are still people arguing that his conviction should be upheld. And then so many people are like, oh, racism isn't like, it's not it's come such a long way. It's so different. It doesn't exist today. Are you kidding? Like, you have to be kidding. Because how do you not see that? There's literally no other factor in this case that would warrant, not that this warrants it, but yeah, push for his conviction or for his conviction to be upheld other than, oh, he was a young black man who, who got, knew the who people. Who got sassy with the police. Who was a little bit sassy. Are you kidding me? And they didn't like that. Well, they ain't going to like I mean, me. they claim that he threatened them, but like nowhere in nowhere in my research was there any like detail to that, number one. I don't know. Mm. That sounds really familiar as somebody who's grown up watching all of the police violence. Yeah. And they're always like, well, he threatened me. Hmm. Did he now? I I don't know. Just makes me think of Emmett Till, which is going to make me cry. So I can't talk about that. Yeah. And I just, it's hard. It's hard because you want to, the thing is, is that when I was very young, before I understood all the race stuff and before you really know any better, you're raised to believe like, oh, if you're ever in need of help, reach out to the police. Like if you're ever in a public place and you get lost and you see a police officer, you go to that person. Like- so you still want to believe the best of police because mm-hmm. and you still want 
I want to respect the police because they do put their lives in danger Mm -hmm. every day. But then you read so much crap like this and you go. It's "Ah." so hard. And yes, I, I do believe that whole to some degree, I believe that whole bad apples argument. But to me, this is exactly why I wanted to do this case, because I literally searched podcasts for this case. There's three podcasts that mention this case or talk about this case, and every single one of them have black hosts. And while that makes sense, we have to talk about we this. We have to talk about as it. As white, it's like it's it's on it is our duty as like you said this in the beginning as allies of anything. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I grew up surrounded by people of color and then where I moved to where we live now and there it's much it's much more white everywhere. Oh, yeah. So I have seen both sides of it from Mm -hmm. growing up, and it is insane to me. And you just you have to be vocal. Right. And that's how I feel about the whole bad apples argument is, yeah, I'm sure there are some bad apples. Mm -hmm. But the reason that doesn't change is because there's a whole lot of people that while they may not believe in what the bad apples believe, while they may not agree with what their actions are, are you standing up to them? When they make, what are you doing? When they help, make comments yeah. or show that side of them, when you're just doing your day to day work mm-hmm. or whatever, are you saying that's bullshit? That is not okay. Yeah, you need to watch yourself. Like, or are you following? And this is what a lot of people are coming to believe, which is. No, it's like a brotherhood, and they're going to stand up for each other no matter what. No matter what. How is that any different than, are you telling me if your family member or one of your best friends commits? I know, I know we joke about like, oh, like I'll help you hide the body kind of thing. (laughs) We joke about that. But no, seriously, if one of my family members, if even one of my own children were to commit like horrible crimes and or behave in such an awful manner i'm gonna take them out and if i can't take it like if i can't take you down a notch then i'm going to turn you in Uh uh-huh i'm going to turn this in my police officer father has said a million times if you kill someone i'm turning you in real quick exactly (laughs) exactly you don't do that because you like people have to being part of like a brotherhood or a community to me should mean if one of your members' families goes through a, a bad time, you're raising right. money to help them. Yes. Or they're build, rebuilding their house after the fire. Like, that is yes. what it means. It does not mean that you can excuse racism or sexism or rapes or anything of the sort. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. That's – thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on the TED Talk. So Kevin was released from prison, and like we already mentioned, he was in his 60s. He was released at the age of 62, and unfortunately, he is mostly confined to a wheelchair at this point because he's got some health issues. Then the next question is, He does, does he not deserve compensation for the fact that that he just spent his entire mm-hmm. adult life wrongfully in prison. This is what I was seeing on Twitter. So, unfortunately, 
he's not eligible for compensation from the state of Missouri because due to a state law, that law only a lot. It's hard to even say this out loud. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, that law that law only allows wrongfully convi- convicted defendants who prove their innocence through DNA evidence to receive compensation. That is the stupidest bullshit I've ever heard in my life. What? Yep. So they're saying, okay, okay, hold on. They're saying that you have to prove your innocence in a specific way. Yes. To be compensated. Yes. Why on God's green earth would they write it that way? Why did any of this take place? <laughs> I don't, I have no explanation. Well, I'm asking like, does this, does this rule come from like, from a case law that something happened? And oh, so that's a good question. Saying, I didn't look like, that up. I did not look that up. Oh, well, in this case, it was from DNA. So in the case law and like the, we'll yeah. write it that way. I didn't that think to look that up. That has to be the only reason that they wrote it that way. It might be. But, you know, laws are, whether they write it or it's case law, like, unfortunately, it's it's kind of like when you see warning signs in public places. Yeah. Matt and I laugh all the time because, the uh, you know, our kids will be like, why is that sign there? Because it seems so obvious to them. Mm-hmm. Like, don't do that. Watch your stuff. Like, yeah. it seems so obvious. And we're like, that's there. Because that happened. Yeah. (laughs) It happened. And so now they have to cover themselves from the liability of it happening again. So now there's a sign, you know, just like, just like, although I have strong feelings on the whole, are you familiar with the McDonald's coffee case? I am. Because people act like that's no big deal. But girl, she had third third degree degree burns burns on her. No coffee should ever be hot enough to no. give you third degree yeah. burns. No. That one, I, no. we might cover that because that is insane. <laughs> that one blows my thing. mind and I hate the misconception of like. But because of that, mm-hmm. now they have the, well, now they've let up on it. But for many years then they had yeah. across their cups, hot coffee, hot coffee. Well, let me say this though. Our justice system is meant to be adjusted over time. Oh, absolutely. So how come... No, no, the judge that looked at this case didn't say, well, this law, this law is written real stupid. <laughs> like, and they just were like, yeah, we'll just leave it. Well, I will say it did say it did mention that Judge Welsh, who vacated his conviction, was actually a I don't know if they mean like he retired just after this mm. or if they like brought him back out in of retirement out of retirement. But they mentioned that he's a retired appellate judge. So, so that's probably why. I don't know. But it but it would have been the same Either way he did the compensation. I don't know. Was that a different hearing? I don't know. I don't think there was any hearing. Mm. They can't even motion for it because mm. or do I anything. See, I see. Because that law prevents him from That is incredibly stupid. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but people pulled together. So here's the good news. Trisha Rojo Bushnell, the executive director of the Midwest Innocence Project, and one, she was also one of the attorneys working on his case once he was able to yeah. get some traction and then reached out. She started a GoFundMe fundraiser for Kevin, which 
as of yesterday, I double checked the numbers, has reached over 1.7 million. That's a drop in the bucket of to what he should have earned over his lifetime. But at least he doesn't but. come out of prison. I mean, because you think about that. He spent his whole adult life. He never even... He had no money when he went out. Nobody has and I, like... Well, and you know what, though? The other, I didn't mean to cut you off. I that's just okay. had thought. The rule of like retirement is at this point, it used to be you needed a million dollars to retire. Mm-hmm. Now it's you need $2 million to retire. At least, at least he doesn't really have to go get a job, technically. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. But that's, that's that- the part that... I was like, okay, well, at least somebody helped him. Yeah. And he'll actually, you know, I mean, I suppose maybe people who get compensation from in that respect actually do see, but we know like in civil lit, mm-hmm. a lot of people who sue don't actually ever get Yeah, you, it's really the money that they're thing. awarded. So Kevin has publicly expressed his appreciation um, to everybody who's assisted and even thanked Judge Welsh. He's gone on to express interest in advocating for others like him, stating he has on ideas on how to keep this from happening to others. Well, good. I hope he does feel that even if his direct community didn't back him when the time came with the jury, that he feels it now and that yeah. the so, right people are backing him. So I just want to give... Um, some statistics i know that's boring on some <laughs> level but um exoneration statistics because i think a lot of people don't realize how flawed the justice system can be it's great when it works mm-hmm. but it can be a bit messed up mm-hmm. so In 2021, there were 161 exonerations on record in the U.S. Wow. Exonerees um, of that time, from those 161, they lost an average of 11.5 years of their lives to wrongful imprisonment. Official misconduct occurred in at least 102 of those cases. And 59 of those cases were homicide cases. 47 of the exoneration cases in 2021 were convictions based on, at least in part, a mistaken witness identification. So, I don't really care to speculate. I don't know. I don't care to speculate, but I will say... If this is the number of people exonerated in a year, um, imagine how many are still in prison that uh, can't yeah. prove their innocence. Like, that's, that's why I, I could have, I know that they estimate that statistic too, but I don't, I didn't even look it up because I'm like, I don't even, how accurate could that really be? How do we know? We don't, which is horrible. But this case is based off of the statistics that you just read. This case is a poster example of people who are in jail and how they got there and who mm-hmm. shouldn't be and and what led to that with the the misconduct yeah. and the misidentification and yep. you ever wonder how it happens this is how it happens. Yep, that's how it happens. And I mean, you feel wrong saying 
he's lucky that he made it out. But at the same time, like, that's part of why I don't even like to think about the people, like, how many people were wrongfully imprisoned and died in prison. Mm-hmm. Because even prison is a dangerous place to some degree. And whether it's because they get sick, they get injured and don't get 100% proper medical treatment or, I mean, not to be stereotypical, but they get shivved. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't Is know. Is it stereotypical if it's true? I never know. I don't know. So. I don't. Yeah. What I mean, what a case, man. Sorry to go out on a sad note. I mean, the the happy note is, yes, Kevin is out and people stepped in and helped. So he shouldn't have to, you know, be homeless with no money because he spent his entire adult life in prison and unable to earn much or do much. You know, I I know that they can in prison do certain things, but. Yeah, but you're not, he's not going out and getting married and having his first kid and watching his exactly. kid get married. He missed out, on, he missed out on all oh, of Oh, he did have a kid, though. Oh. He, he did before he, he, he was. Okay, well. That... I mean, they don't really mention. I think, oh, they did mention his, he had a girlfriend at the time. So I, I'm assuming she was the mom of the kid, but. Uh, yeah, and look at what that child lost. Yes. So it's, there's no positive spin on this case, even though he's out. Yeah. But thank you for covering it. It's important. Yeah. Sorry, it's a bummer. But it is important. It is so important. So thanks for listening. Thank you so much. And like I said in the beginning, please go follow us on everything. Um, We're going to make a Facebook group so you can go in and join and comment and tell us what you're thinking about each case. And we would love to get to know you guys. So this is really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. Getting to know. I'm not I'm not a singer. <laughs> Never mind. I will spare everyone from that. Well, till next time. Till next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.